Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Nick Chater. Nick's a professor of behavioral science at the University of Warwick School of Business. Hello, everybody. Glad to have you here, Nick. This should be fun. Yeah, no, it's a real pleasure to be invited. Yeah, in fact, you don't know this, but I've actually been following your work for quite a while, particularly the work you've done with Morton Christensen on the structure and evolution of language. I went back and looked at my records, and I believe the first paper I read by you guys was towards a connectionist model of recursion in human linguistic performance, which I think was around 1999. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, this very day, I've been working with Morton on a, a new book um, that we're putting together called Provisioning at Least a Language Game. So we're still working together 20 years on and, uh, and having as much fun as ever. Yeah, he's a, he's a fine fellow. I got to know him when he was a sabbatical visitor at the Santa Fe Institute. We were both there and we had some, uh, some excellent conversations. So give him my regards. Today, we're going to be talking about one of Nick's books, The Mind is Flat. And as always, you can find a link to that book on Amazon, I think, on our episode page at jimrutcho.com. Now, this has got a little interesting history, a little unusual for the podcast, in that I actually read the book a while back, back in late 2018, as I checked for my records, and I found it shockingly radical, as maybe some of you will, as we dig into some of the ideas on it. And I found it so radical, I said to myself, I really need to read this again to come to a firm conclusion about it. But, you know, the rush of life, many other books to read, work to be done, I didn't do it until now. And I said, you know, we have quite a few people in the cognitive science and artificial intelligence area on the podcast. You know, I really ought to reach out to Nick Chater and and give me an excuse to reread the book and maybe sharpen up my conclusions about it a little bit. And I got to say, it's still radical as shit, but it holds together. And what's more, it's congruent with a great body of cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience, and lab psychology research. And in retrospect, it should have been obvious, right? Since 2014, when I really took seriously to trying to learn a little bit about cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience, I think I've read 75 books and maybe 300 papers. And I kind of feel like Thomas Huxley and what he said about Darwin's theory of evolution. How stupid of me not to thought of that. (laughs) Really, it's a radical idea, but I can't find any holes in it. Also, for those who want to learn more about it, there's a course available at futurelearn.com called The Mind is Flat. We'll have a link to that on the website as well at jimrutcho.com. Essentially, what Nick is talking about in this book is that the view that so many of us have had from culture, from science, from literature, from clinical psychology, etc., that there's great depth in the human mind. And his argument is that this is not only misconceived, but it's just wrong, right? Now, the very idea that our minds contain hidden depths is completely wrong. And he starts off with kind of a, an interesting interlude about Anna Karenina. 
why don't you tell us a little bit about that and then let's get rolling. Yes, well, thank you so much, Jim. It's a wonderful intro. Um, yes, so if you read a, a book, uh, any book, really, you'll have a sense that the, the characters are, uh, are very, become very real to you. And one of the things that's very interesting is that they often seem realer than the actual people we know, or at least as real. So, for example, with Anna Karenina, you have a, a character developed through the book who you have a sense of a tr- tormented and troubled woman. Uh, at the very end of the book, I hope no plot spoilers are going to be, um, be objected to, uh, she, she, she jumps under a train and commits suicide. And it's not quite clear to you as the reader why she does that. But you have a, still have a sense of a rich, a rich, complex person, and you think, well, maybe it was despair at being, uh, never being acceptable in St. Petersburg society because of her her wild lifestyle and her, her affair with her, her lover, perhaps the, the affair with the lover was failing. Um, there are any numbers of reasons for, for feeling hopeless, but also it could just have been a sort of momentary sense of uh, 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 almost theatrical, sort of making a theatrical gesture without really having thought it through at all. You're not sure. And I think what's interesting is that you have a sense of a rich character, a, a deep, interesting character, and one of the most the central characters of one of the most important books um, novels ever written, but you really don't have a very clear sense of what this character is is, is doing and why. And uh, one thing you might think is, well, if this was a real life character, a real person, not not a fictional one, then we could simply ask her. We could say, okay, well, I didn't. You, you seem to be a very complex, three dimensional, rich human being, and you did this extraordinary act. Then you tell me why you did it. Um, but of course, I think when we think about that a bit more sort of obvious to us that actually Anna herself in, in contemplating, perhaps not very, very deeply contemplating her, her last uh, her desperate act, probably doesn't have any particularly deep insights that we don't have ourselves. And she'll be able to tell you a story. She'll be able to think, well, yes, I guess, hmm, what is bothering me at the moment? I, I think it must be this. It's the, it's the, hopeless, the hopeless romantic relationship that I got myself entangled in. Or it's, it's the fact that I didn't properly see my child. Or it's the fact that I, I'm, I'm going to be ostracized by the aristocracy of, of, of St. Petersburg and Moscow. But actually, she's speculating just as much as we are. And I think that even if you would, and suppose imagine that she were to uh, survive the, the, the incident and, and, and you could ask her in her recuperating, as I imagine it in the book in the Swiss sanatorium, you could say, well, look back and think through why, why you engaged in that act. And again, my feeling is that you know, I'm trying to put, sort of push on your intuition that that process of looking back at something one did and trying to work out why did I do that, that's really pretty similar. In fact, very, very similar, I think, to the process of trying to understand why a fictional character or another person did something. What you're doing is you're looking at your behavior, looking at your uh, experiences and trying to piece together what must have been going on. But what you can't do is, is, as it were, look inside some kind of deep um, inner self and think, well, hang on, other people have to speculate about my motives, but I can just see them. They're just written in my, in, in sort of my, some sort of um, vault inside my mind. You know, let me have a quick look, a ruffle through, and I'll tell you what, the, what, what it says. But I think that's, 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 we all know that to be illusory. And in fact, of course, if you ask people to, to explain their behavior several times, they'll often give you different or at least not perfectly aligned answers because we don't fully understand ourselves. So really, I want, whatever, where I want to go as, as, as an intuition pump at the beginning of the book, and obviously here too, is to make one think, well, this is an odd thing, because we have a sense of a rich character of Anna Karenina, we have a sense of rich characters in people around us and in, in ourselves, 
And I don't want to understate at all the complexity of human beings. We are astounding. We are, I think in some ways that the idea that our mind has mental depths actually obscures, we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, obscures how unbelievably creative and clever we are and what extraordinary beings we are. Um, so I'm not wanting to in any way reduce the remarkable nature of human cognition. Um, but I do think we should sort of al allow the possibility that when I'm trying to understand my own actions, or Anna's trying to understand her actions, or I'm trying to understand the actions of another person, or a fictional character, I'm really doing the same thing. And the final point is that when you think about fictional characters, and I think this is a, this is a bit of a shocker, um, when you think about fictional characters, it's obvious that there's no right answer. So if I ask you, well, come on then, what is, what, what is the reason that Anna jumped under the train, you know, really and truly? And of course, there's no real answer to that because it's just a story. There is no, there's no deep um, question of which can be settled by investigating Anna's brain because there is no Anna with no brain. However, however, I think that's exactly the right approach we should be having uh, when we're thinking about other people and ourselves too. It's not the case that actually, if you could scan Anna's brain at a critical moment, you could read off the fact that her real motivation was one thing or another. Um, I think that's that's a, that's itself a, an illusion. So I think the the creation of stories about ourselves is something we do all the time. We can create more and less convincing stories, and we can argue about the stories. But the idea that there's some kind of ground truth is is, is a dangerous mistake. I think so. It doesn't mean that you cannot have sensible debates about why you acted as you did, just as you can for literary characters. So if I said Anna's concern was, I don't know, primarily um, a, a despair at the state of the serfs, you could reasonably say, well, there's absolutely no sign of that in the rest of the book. It doesn't seem to be at all bothered about them. <laughs> Lots of other people are. Um, and then in which case, you'd have, a, <laughs> you'd have a perfectly good argument. So it's not that you can say anything, but the idea that there's a kind of ground truth that you can get at is no more true, I think, for fictional characters than it is of ourselves. There's no there's no real sense in which there's a the real answer deep in, lurking deep within me. Yeah. I found that very good, as you say, intuition pump to kind of compare and contrast. Hmm. You know, maybe we're not that different than a fictional character. And of course, the other side of the argument, kind of what you're arguing against, I suppose, is what started to manifest in the late 19th century and in through the kind of the late mid 20th century, depth psychology, Freud, Jung, and those characters in fact, I'm going to read more than usual number of brief quotes from the book to kind of get a sense of your position, where you're coming from. No amount of therapy, dream analysis, word association, experiment, or brain scanning can recover a person's true motives, not because they are difficult to find, but because there is nothing to find. It is not hard to plumb our mental depths because they are so deep and so murky because there are no mental depths to plumb right? Quite the opposite of the depth psychology guys. No one at any point in human history has ever been guided by inner beliefs or desires any more than any human being has been possessed by evil spirits or watched over by a guardian angel. And another, the very idea of looking into our own minds embodies the mistake. We talk as if we have a faculty of introspection to scrutinize the contents of our inner world, just as we have faculties of perception to inform us about the external world. But introspection is a process not of perception, but of invention. The real-time generation, interpretation, and explanations to make sense of our own world and actions. The inner world is a mirage. And then... Finally, but of all this depth, richness, and endless scope for exploration, it's utterly 
fake. <laughs> so you don't hold back here. And at first I thought this was repetitious, but I, I did find it actually helpful to kind of move me psychologically off the ball of, you know, what we've kind of culturally found through our, you know, religions and depth psychology, et cetera, that there's all this stuff there to be discovered. Yes, I, th- I think that's it, it is a very hard shift to make. Um, and I think it's something that on the one hand seems, as you were hinting in your introduction, on the one hand seems incredibly plausible and intuitive, and another, on the other hand seems just completely crazy. Uh, and I think one tends to oscillate between the, the two perspectives. And I think it, it takes quite a long time to think, to, to feel comfortable with the fact that this, this um, sense that we have of being, of being driven by sort of beliefs and desires and motives, um, many of them mysteriously hidden from us, is actually just the wrong way to see things. Um, so I think, I mean, I, I, again, I mean, thinking about fictional characters, I think, is a good st- way in because because there, in some sense, you want to be able to say, well, of course, um, the characters in books, they're kind of in some loose sort of uh, metaphorical sense driven by emotions and motives and so on, so on. Because when I tell a story about why they did what they did, I'll say, well, her motive there was this, I think. I think she probably thought that this was true. Or she thought that Fronsky wasn't, in fact, being faithful to her. Or maybe she didn't. Um, but I'm, I'm giving you a, a rationalization, a story. But, of course, I don't really think, I don't really think it's, that's, that story is somehow instantiated in Anna's, Anna's brain and actually has driven her behavior. And I think that's the, the critical trick is to realize that that's not really true for, for understanding other people and ourselves either. Um, so that, so one, one reason to, to, to think this is that when we look at the stories we tell about ourselves of all shapes and sizes, whether they're complex stories or everyday stories about why we do things, the sad and, and consistent truth is that the stories we tell don't seem to fit together. So if you ask, you ask me why I did something and I'll give you, a, I'll tell you, and you ask me, well, yeah, tell me more about that. Why did you do it that particular way? And I'll, amazingly, I'll just keep on talking. It's, you know, we're amazing spinners of yarns. So I can keep on going as if there's this enormous um, sort of library full of, 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 of self-understanding that I can draw on. So like, why did you, you take that particular route and say, oh, well, it's pretty busy on the other route. And, and then it's also just a little more scenic. And, and why is it more scenic? What would you say about it? What makes it more scenic? And I can tell you a story about that. And I can just go on indefinitely. So you can either conclude from this, well, first of all, the, 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 the richness of my explanation is, is suspicious because every time you probe it, more appears. And you might think, well, you know, have I just got this whole whole bookloads of information just waiting there to uh, um, to answer your every question, all ready to go? Or am I in fact making it up as I go along? Um, I'm just sort of thinking, gosh, you've got me there. I, I, I'll cook up an answer. Oh, here's an answer. Got to give me a new question. Oh, I'll give you a new answer to that. And of course, if I'm improvising, if I'm doing that creative, making it up as I go along thing, you should be able to catch me out because you, sh- you should find that. The answers I'm giving aren't referring back to some common source, some sort of um, fixed book of my mind, which is which is just guides at my at my, at my every action and thought. Instead, I'm like a novelist spinning a story, and my my characters and the different elements of the plot are inevitably, if I'm not very very careful, going to get tangled up and not quite make sense. And there's going to be various inconsistencies creeping in. And uh, and the truth is, when you ask people about that. That's exactly what you see. Inconsistencies everywhere. Yeah, I think I got halfway there, interestingly. And as I was sort of processing this morning, my reaction to reading the book was, you know, 
while I should have gotten all the way there, I was sort of halfway there in that I had looked quite carefully at Mike Gazaniga's split brain research and, you know, his strong evidence are just very fluid confabulation, right? We just make shit up, right? To make the story as consistent as possible. And you do go through a lot of that kind of evidence. So let's start talking a little bit about the evidence that supports the argument. And let's start with where you do with visual processing and the grand illusion. Yes, yes. So I think this is a very interesting place to start. Because, and this is you know, something that's been much talked about in philosophy and psychology, uh, starting not with Alvin Noe and Daniel Dennis and many other important philosophers and psychologists. And so this is the idea, this question of when we consider the world around us, and sort of look about, we have a sense of enormous richness. This is an illusion, of, very similar to the illusion we're going to come to in a minute. It's an illusion now we're thinking just about perception, not thinking about our motives and beliefs, but we'll see that this is very parallel. So we think, as I look around the world, I think, yes, it's fully colorful everywhere, and seen in crisp and clear detail. Uh, if I look at a picture of some text, uh, or a page of text, I think I see words everywhere. Maybe how many words do I see at once? I don't know, 50? Um, probably not a whole page worth, but you know, a lot. You know, I see that I see words everywhere. If I look at a, a, a school photograph, I think, well, I'm seeing, I'm recognizing all these people. Maybe not all the ones in the far distant periphery, but I'm having a sense that they're also recognizable. So I have this really rich sense of my visual environment, and yet, and yet we know that in, that we know that is an illusion for very basic physiological reasons, apart from lots of clever experiments. So the basic, very, very basic physiological reasons, which we all know very well from, from school biology, but tend to conveniently forget. Well, first of all, let's take color. There are two types of cell in the eye that detect color. Uh, there are cone cells and, and, and rod cells. So cone cells detect color, uh, sorry, detect color, and, and rod cells just really detect essentially um, uh, motion, but they're black and white detectors. So they don't see color. Now, the cone cells are very concentrated in the, around the fovea, the, the center of the visual field. So as I look at something, the part of my retina that is the light will be falling on is the fovea, a little clump of cells. Really dense, about one between one and two degrees of visual angle, it tapers off outside that, and that is where the cone cells live. Now, there's a little around ten degrees out, because until about ten degrees out, there are some cone cells, but not very many. So it's roughly true that your all of your color vision is in a little channel. It's a bit like a little head, sort of headlight. So when you're looking right at a patch of color, you can you can um, read off its color. But if you go very far outside the patch, you haven't got the cells to do it. You simply can't possibly know what color anything is. Um, and that's really weird because when I look at the world now, I think, well, that's just wrong, isn't it? I can see color everywhere. But actually, that's not the case. Um, so let's just hold, hold that thought for one. Uh, but it's not just color, it's also detail. So the for, for the uh, cells, the, 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 the uh, cone cells in the fovea are also what process um, detail, detailed um, sort of structure. And for that matter, if you go too far outside the, the, into the periphery of vision, the image is simply blurry. In fact, very blurry if you went to 20 or 30 degrees uh, out, outside of the visual uh, center. So if, you look, if I look at something and think, well, how, how much can I see 20 or 30 degrees off the center from where I'm looking? Um, well, the answer is it can't be very much because the image is horrendously blurry. But I, again, I have no perception of that. So I have a sense that the world is in perfectly clear focus. I can see all the detail. It's like I can see all the color. But we know that's wrong. Now, where, where does that illusion come from? What's driving it? And I think the answer to that um, and there's actually there's sort of two perspectives actually I should say this it's not um, not just one one view in this area the one perspective would say ah filling in 
what your brain is doing is it's getting really detailed and veridical information from the from the fovea, but it's it's sort of guessing about the rest of things. So that's one possibility that we're basically guessing. And when we, as we move our eye around, we can sort of adjust the guesses and, and see where they're, where they're right and where they're wrong. That's one possibility. But the other possibility is that we're in fact not filling in. Um, in fact, what we're doing instead is just sampling a tiny portion of the image. And the sense that we see everything comes from the fact that as soon as I wonder about any aspect of the visual image, if I think, what color is that? Or what word is that? Or who's that? In the, in the picture, I can immediately answer the question. So the idea is that I haven't got the answer preloaded, and I haven't guessed it either. It's just that as soon as you ask me, if I ask myself a question about color or shape or the identity of a word or anything else, incredibly speedily, my eye can flick into action, look at the thing, read off the color or shape or the identity of the word, and before you know it, in fact, within you know, two or three hundred milliseconds, there's an answer. And that's so quick but essentially it's instantaneous to me. It's as if I've got this information loaded into my mind. So I think of myself, and in some sense I really am, as having the world, as it were, at my visual, visual fingertips. Ask me anything about the world around me, I can answer it. And that's what it, that's what it is, according to the second view, to feel that the world is, as it were, present to you in complete uh, detail. It's not that you've actually loaded this into your brain at all, it's that you have it ready to sample and extract so speedily that um, since you can improvise the answer so quickly that you have the feeling that the answer was already there. And I think that's an interesting, uh, if I, first of all, it's very interesting in itself that our intuitions about our perception are so wrong. So we have the feeling of this great richness of the virtual world, and that's absolutely not the case. In fact, I'll give an illustration of that in a moment. But it's also an interesting clue about our creative abilities as, uh, and improvisational abilities as cognizers. We're, we're phenomenal improvisers. And when we're in, we're, because we're such good improvisers, we don't realize we're improvising. So we, you ask me a question about the color of some distant object, and I'll tell you. And I think, well, I, I saw that all along. I knew that what that color was. I just, you've asked me and I've told you, but I had that loaded in my head. But in fact, if I wasn't looking at it, I really didn't have it loaded in my head. Um, but I could answer the question so fast, it feels as if I did. And I think that's true when we're answering questions about our motivations and our beliefs and so on. Uh, you, you give me a question, I'm, I can answer it. And it's so so speedy am I with my answer that, that I think, I didn't just make that up, that was in there. Now, I knew the answer to that. I'm going to give a, a couple of quick examples in a perceptual context. Um, one, I think, is really astounding intuitively, um, but has been known for a long time in eye movement research. So this goes back to um, work uh, in Keith Rayner's lab, um, now dead sadly, a very remarkable pioneer of eye movement research. So in his early work, when he was at MIT, he went to Amherst after that, I think UCSD towards the end of his career, in his very early days at MIT in the 70s, um, he started working on a very simple but very interesting um, paradigm. So you read a sentence which is presented to you on a, on a screen, on a computer, and as you do, do it, they track your eyes. So they have a simple setup for watching where your eyes go, so you can see that the eyes quite accurately move as you hop across the, the screen. So when you're reading a sentence, you will be essentially jumping word by word by word, roughly. And sometimes short words get jumped over and long words you read in a couple of jumps. But essentially your eyes hopping, bounce, 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 bounce across the screen in, in, in discrete lumps. It might, actually another illusion we have is that it feels as if our eyes are moving smoothly when we read from, from 
uh, left to right. But in fact, that's not right. It's the movement in jumps. Um, oh, and just another thing, actually, if we just get to think about the illusory nature of perception. Another thing that's also interestingly true is when you move your eye, you're essentially blind. You can't see anything while the eye is in motion. And so, you're also, so as, you look, as you read, you have this strange interplay of picking up information, complete blindness, picking up information, complete blindness. Uh, again, we're completely oblivious to that too. Anyway, the important thing is what Rainer was able to do um, with the information about where your eye was looking. And that was to feed that back to the computer and to change what's on the screen in consequence. So the clever trick was thinking, well, what would it be like if we give you a, a, a line of text and only where you are looking fairly exactly, in fact, the critical window turned out to be about 15 characters long, 15 characters around where you're looking, in fact, five going to the left, 10 to the right, uh, if we read left to right. Slight, we're slightly more interested in what's coming next than what we just read. We're gonna have a 15 character window, which is unchanged, untouched, no funny, funny business. But all the, the other, all the rest of the words in the line of text will be X's or Latin or anything you like. So what you're going to do is you're going to read a, a text uh, where as you as your eyes go from left to right, as they bounce across the screen, the actual text itself will change. So wherever you're looking, text will appear as if it, you're seeing the, the, the whole sentence. But where you're not looking, then you've just got X's. So, so if I were looking over your shoulder as you were doing this experiment, I'd see a line of X's with some coherent text. And coherent text was start on the left, and it would go bounce, 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 bounce across the screen. So to me, it would seem like a really weird thing. Uh, I see this strange pattern of, sort of orderly, meaningful words moving across a sea of X's or Latin or something else. But if I asked you in the experiment, well, you know, how does that feel? The answer would be, well, how did what feel? I was just reading some text. And if I said, well, did you notice anything funny about, and did you see any X's? Did you see any Latin? The answer is no. I was just reading text normally. There's nothing funny going on. I, I, just, I just read like I normally read. And the point is that the, the, the what's shocking is that if you give someone this kind of what's called gauge contingent display so that you're, you're driving what they see based on the location of their eyes, you can give them a little tiny window of information around where they're looking and the rest can be essentially junk and they will never know the difference. Uh, it feels like the full text is available to them. They can see the whole sentence. And, and of course, in some sense, that's right, because as soon as they want to go back, think, let me just check back. I missed the beginning of the sentence. I'll check back quickly. It appears just as you go to look at it, it appears. Um, you want to get jump jump forwards a bit, that will appear too. So you have the sense that there's the, the full sentence is there for you. It's at your fingertips. And it sort of is, but it really isn't present um, because, in fact, the, 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 the stimulus has been, you know, large chunks of it have been deleted. And the same principle applies not just to text, but it applies to anything. So if I showed you a school photo uh, and you look at a particular face, but all the other faces are slightly blurred, that's you're never going to notice that either. As long as where whichever face you're looking at, I make sure to unblur that one just as you look at it, then you'll think, no, no, they're all in perfect focus. And in fact, that has to be right because actually where you're not looking, the world is blurred. That's, that's just the way it is. It's blurred, it's pretty colorless, and it's not very detailed, um, but we don't notice because we're not looking at it. Um, so I think... That's, you know, that's both weird and interesting in itself. And I think also gives you a, a sense that it would be slightly odd to think of the filling in story as being right. Because if, if I'm just reading a patch of text, it seems a bit weird to say, I'm filling in all the text that's coming and all the text that's happened. I mean, you know, I haven't read it yet. How could I be filling in the next stuff? It seems a bit of a strange perspective. 
But I think the better, better perspective is to say, you know, your sense of the thing being real to you is the sense that ask, ask yourself a question about it and you can answer it really fast. Um, and so that's, I think, the same sense we have when we think about our own, our own uh, motivations and beliefs and so on. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And, and you actually answered a question that I had while I was reading. I said, well, why would evolution have created this sense of more completeness than is really there? And the answer you gave is the real world is relentlessly consistent. For facts to hold good in the same world, they cannot be contradictory. And then you also said, however, inconsistency and sparseness are not just characteristics of fiction. They are also the hallmarks of mental life. So interestingly, you know, I took away from your words that evolution has been playing a very clever grand illusion, which is to approximate the consistency of the real world with very sparse and inconsistent data. A pretty cool trick. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I think that's exactly what the, what, what the, what the brain is doing. And if, if we had, imagine the opposite of subjective experience. If you imagine that every time you looked at something, it suddenly sprang into detail and color. And then when you looked away, it, it faded into murky colorlessness. You'd have the sense that the world was changing. But the world isn't changing. You've just changed where you're looking. Um, and when you look back, there it is again, looking, um, looking bright and colorful. So we have the, the sense that what perception is trying to tell me is what the world is actually like. And if the world is not changing, I'm just moving my eyes. And I don't want the brain to be saying, goodness me, everything's getting very, there's color appearing. Oh, it's gone again. It's come back. Details appearing. It's going, it's coming. That, there's, there's no actual change in the world. So I don't want to confuse the system by, by seeing changes where there aren't any. And the other point about consistency, I think, is crucial because the real world has to be consistent, inevitably. So that means that when I, and just, it, it, if, of course, if you're in a devious psychological experiment, that gets strained a little bit because then you can start to mess with people. So you can get them to look look around the picture and at one moment they're looking at one thing, then they look at it again and you can change what they saw um, and see if they notice. So you can, you can start to, to start to mess with that. But, but normally the, the world doesn't play horrible tricks on us too often. And so um, we, you know, we get along fine with this, this uh, perspective. Um, but I think what we, where we go wrong is thinking, when we imagine ourselves introspecting, we're thinking that's the same thing. The thing is, with, with introspect, with, with perception, there's a physical, solid, external world which is um, generating the data that we're analyzing. When we're introspecting, we're not looking into some inner world. In fact, there is no inner world. What we're doing is we're interpreting um, our, our behavior and, and our, th our thoughts. We're trying to make sense of our actions. Um, but we're not able to do that by viewing, as it were, viewing some, the, the contents of some sort of inner reality. And the trouble is because we're trying to make sense of ourselves, because that, that's a you know, fundamentally sort of creative process, just as if we're trying to make sense of a fictional character or another person. That is not a pro there's not a solid thing we're perceiving here. We're not perceiving anything. Um, we're, we're inventing. And the inventions will turn out to be very, very sparse uh, and also very inconsistent. Yeah, you gave a wonderful example where you move from the issues with our external perception to our internal perception. You know, take a mental image and see what you actually know of it. You tell an interesting story about the tiger. Maybe you could tell that story. Yes. So I think most of us have the intuition that we can imagine a tiger pretty, pretty clearly. And certainly um, we see tigers and other things in dreams and have a sense that it was, it was vivid. It was almost it was like it was really there. So my question to my, myself was to think, well, 
Uh, and this is actually, this original example probably goes back further than this, but it goes back certainly to Zenon Polishina, um, psychologist and computer scientist interested in, in, in imagery. So the question is to ask yourself some questions about your image of a tiger. So the, the thing that Polishin used to focus on is to say, um, oh, how many stripes are there on its tail? Uh, to which the answer is, oh, yeah, yeah hmm. well, <laughs> I ought to know the answer to that because, I mean, in fact, imagine it that clearly. But let's not leave aside the stripes on its tail because uh, that, that, that's uh, east of it, really. The, um, the question is to think how the stripes work around the body at all. So, for example, you might think, well, what direction are the stripes as they go, go along the body? Do they go along a long ways or around the tiger, uh, the tiger's body? And then what about the legs? I mean, how do they go? Um, so you try, try to imagine maybe a tiger's um, stripes go maybe around the legs and maybe maybe around the body. So, but what happens when they join together? Um, how does the, how does the stripy pattern join between the legs and the body? How does that work? And um, it, you know, it just gets very baffling. Now, if you were to look at a picture of a tiger, which I recommend that people might do. Um, you'll find that actually quite large the parts of the tiger, the rather crucial tricky bits to some degree, don't have stripes at all. They're just not striped. So that actually some of the questions you're asking yourself, there's an answer, which is, oh, that's a white bit. Well, there's just no stripes there. And until you look at the tiger, you just you can't imagine that at all. You've also got the question of how the stripes work around the face. And it's just, you know, it's just something that when you see a tiger, you think, of course, that's the only way it could be. Try to envisage one, try and count the stripes, try to imagine how they go, how they interface with each other. It's absolutely hopeless. And I think this is a really general sort of trick that our mind is playing on. So we have the sense that we can reconstruct you know, animals, um, people's faces, uh, all sorts of uh, letters, actually. If you just try to, and some of you will know how to do this, but try to write a typical lowercase g as printed in something like Times New Roman. What does that look like? And I'm just trying to imagine it now, and I know it's pretty weird. But it's not, it's not like a, a G of handwriting, that's for sure. And yet this is something I've seen, we've all seen, literally hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of times in our life. We can't even remember very clearly what that looks like. Yeah, I couldn't tell you. It's interesting, yeah. Let's dig in a little bit. We are a little short of time because there's so much interesting here. Let's make sure we move along. One of the things that's you know sort of key on your argument is that basically everything is perceptual processing, and that includes memory, which at first seems you know a little contradictory, a little off-putting. But again, there are arguments from cognitive science that memories are really nothing much more than snapshots of perception. Could you talk a little bit about? And this is an area I'm very interested in. A lot of my work goes in here in the area of the linkage between consciousness, memory, perception, and attention. So maybe give your thoughts on what memory traces are, actually, and how our processing of memory is very similar or perhaps identical to our processing of perception. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think the intuition is that we often have is that perception is a kind of front end to the mind. It sort of filters the, filters the input, makes sense of it. And then we store some kind of abstract representation of the output. We pop that into a memory. Uh, and, and that memory system might be really different from the way perception works. It's just a you know, set, next, next stage in the process, as it were. And I think that's a very misleading way to think. And in fact, I think it's misleading, really, to think of memory even really existing as a separate thing. We clearly me remember lots of stuff. But the idea that there's, a, as it were, a memory bank, which is somehow separate from the, the um, process of uh, picking up and perceiving the information, I think, is, is, is a misguided one. So this is a, sometimes known as a proceduralist view of memory. So according to this sort of idea, you've got a, what you've got is a, 
uh, a set of mechanisms for, for, for perceiving the world, or indeed for that matter, also acting on it. So if you're thinking about remembering how to you know, swing a golf club, so um, in some sense, that's, that's, you, you've swung a golf club lots of times, maybe, in which case um, you know, the, your memory for doing that swinging is not, stop, it's not really stored somewhere separately from the, the motor commands that actually allow you to, do the, to swing the club on a particular occasion. It's, it's just simply an accumulation of all those, all those actions. And similarly, if you're thinking about your um, memory of, of particular people or events or uh, tigers, those are things that you have perceived in real time as you've encountered them. And those perceptions leave, leave a trace. It's not that they produce an output, a kind of, that they sort of as it would give their verdict and say, ah, what happened there was this. I pop that in the memory bank. It's more that they um, that, 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 that the process of understanding the world from all the way from the details of the low-level vision, visual features, all the way up to you know, what was happening there. You know, was that person angry or happy or where were they going with, the, you know, with that implement or whatever it was? All of that is, is that process is simply laying a trace, as it were, in situ. So the idea from this perspective, and that is rather a radical perspective, and it's, the, the, the idea is that if you have damage to a part of the brain that is involved in some aspects of perception, you should also have trouble with imagining or imaging that aspect of the world, and also you should have trouble remembering it too, unless you've recoded that memory in a different form. So the thought here would be, um, if, if, for example, you have an area to damage to an area of visual cortex which is concerned with, say, colour or motion or whatever it may be, but let's say colour, then um, you will struggle to see colours and process them, but you'll also find you can't imagine them either. And also, when you remember images of um, objects, you won't know what colour they are. Now, you might have remembered in words, as it were, pillar boxes are red in the UK. Um, I know that. That's sort of verb, sort of verbal information I've got. So in that case, I can answer the question, what colour is a pillar box? But if I try and visualise a pillar box, if I've had damage to my visual cortex, I can't do it because the memories are stored in the same place as the perception. Or in the case of actions, the, 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 the memory of how to play tennis is stored in the same set circuits that are actually controlling tennis, tennis playing. And I think in general, we tend to miss this because we don't think of perception as, as abstract as it really is. So you might say to yourself, well, yeah, but I mean, perceiving is one thing. That's just sort of knowing what sort of objects are, that there are in the world, what color they are. But when I'm watching a, a movie or talking to a friend, I'm thinking about so much more than that. I'm thinking about you know, intentions and purposes and um, speculating about you know, human nature. Or I might be you know, thinking about a mathematical problem and trying to you know, do, do some geometry in my mind, or, or might be trying to work out how to put together a piece of furniture. And all of these things, I think, should, you should view those as continuous with perception. And they're all tasks which are basically taking data from the senses and trying to work out what to do with it. And once we think of this as, as, a, as a relatively abstract, uh, not, not, just a, not just rooted in this kind of uh, the, the colors and shapes in front of us, but as a, as a process of abstract pattern construction, then that's really, you know, that's really a good chunk of cognition just all about that. Now, having said that, of course, what makes, makes us very good at this kind of task is that we're not just locked into the current sensory input. So I can, I can shut my eyes, as it were, and think about lots of things which, where there's no sensory input coming into me because I have all those past impressions past thoughts, which I, can, which I can review. But they themselves are just in the same format. They're the same kind of thing. They're just sort of past perceptual traces, past memories, memories of past uh, perceptual experiences, rather than 
being of a completely different form. Interesting. Now, one thing that you didn't talk about much, and what I do focus a lot on in my own work, is, as you'd say, that you did say that perception is not just a simple screenshot of what our eyes see, because as you go through carefully, our eyes don't see a screenshot. They see a whole bunch of little things. But one of the high-level processings, which seems ubiquitous pretty much quite a ways down in the phylogenic stack as far as something like consciousness goes, is the ability to find objects. We perceive our existence in the sensorium as full of objects, not chunks of color and shape and lines and edges. We have, seemingly at least, seems to me, and a lot of the research I've seen, a very deep hardwired machine for finding objects. And in fact, there appears to be an object store in the parietal regions of the brain, you know, the famous Mariah Carey neuron, et cetera, that you stimulate a specific neuron and you pull up a very specific object or a general object like dogs or tables, et cetera. How does the concept of objects fit into your sense of perception and memory? Yeah, well, I think that's it's a very, I think it's a very central concept, actually. Um, so I want to... So one of the things I argue quite a lot in the book is the, that we're only we're incredibly serial processors, so we can only really do one thing at a time. And in perceptual terms, I think roughly a way to put that is to say we can perceive essentially one essentially one object at a time. So I think of an ob- object as in a, in a way themselves psychologically very very fundamental um, because they're sort of the unit that the perceptual system can grab hold of. Now that means, for example, that if I'm looking at a word. Uh, I can't see other words. So going back to the eye tracker, uh, as I read a sentence, roughly speaking, my eyes jump word by word by word. And uh, as I mentioned before, you sometimes jump small words, which are um, predictable. You can just guess those. Um, and for long, complicated words, you sometimes need to look at them more than once. Essentially, you, you, you will begin, read the beginning and then the end. But the yeah, broadly speaking, you're picking up one word at a time. And although you have this feeling that you perceive all the other words, that they're not they're not really there. Now I think the, so that, that's one one interesting interesting thing that the the units there may be a sort of basic level of unit that we can grab hold of perceptually. But another interesting thing you might, one might think is but, but aren't words made of letters? So if I can perceive say a word dog, well I'm surely I'm perceiving not I must be perceiving three things D O and G because dog is um, is, is made of three letters. So I must must be able to perceive three things as well as one. It's kind of weird sort of three and one. Trinity in the case of the dog. But actually, I think that's misleading too, because I think if you ask people to focus on the letter, they can't see the word. If you ask them to focus on the word, they can't see the letter, or at least there's huge interference between them. So there, again, it appears, one intuitively feels one can see lots of words and to see all the letters within them. But actually, I think that's not, not right. Um, so let me, give, let me give you an example from speech perception, uh, which I think I talk, talk about in the book, which is the phoneme restoration effect. So this is a, a lovely effect where you play a word and you splice out a bit of it and replace it with white noise. So it sounds like a word with a cough. And the question that the subject is asked is, uh, where was the white noise? You know, what did you miss? So the famous example is you, you play someone with the word legislature, and I think it's the sir. Um, you take out the sir and you just replace it with a, with a cough. As it were. It's just, essentially just pure white noise. And the question is, well, where, where, was the, where was the cough? And people are hopeless at this. They, 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 they often degrade the, 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 the cough to the boundaries of the words. I think it was just before or just after. And just generally, they have, generally have no idea 
uh, what they missed. And so that's really very nice because that's telling you that you perceive the word. You know you heard the word, in this case, the rather strange and unusual word legislature. You're pretty sure of that. But you don't actually know which sound you heard. Um, if I asked you, did you hear the S, you think, well, I don't know. I think I probably did. But you're wrong. You didn't hear the S. That was the bit that was chopped out. But you just simply don't know. Um, and that, you know, that sort of phenomenon, I think, is everywhere in perception. Um, if you perceive a whole, you don't really perceive the, the parts. And if you perceive one whole, you don't perceive other holes. Yeah, a lot of that was, another, you know, we, another example, which is, not, sorry, go ahead. I was going to mention that, you know, the, the field of gestalt psychology has been drilling into this for a long time, right? We perceive a car as a whole, but if we focus, and there's some, even some interesting thought about it, what angle do you focus, et cetera? A car has tires and handles and a roof and a boot, as you'd say in the UK, et cetera. But when we're just seeing things go by on the road, we just perceive them holistically as cars. It takes an additional level of effort and attention, and we'll talk about attention in a minute, to decompose an object into its components. But you probably, as you point out, you can do one or the other. You can perceive the car as a whole, or you can perceive the tires, but you probably can't do both, right, it's simultaneously. And again, this has to do with this granular, but probably hierarchical structure of objects that we're operating in. Let me drill into another question that I had, which is you don't, other than very much in passing, dig into the distinction, if there is one, and maybe your work would say there isn't one, between the different kinds of memory with respect to their contents. And then I'm thinking particularly episodic memory, i.e. rethinking the dinner I had with my daughter last night versus declarative memory, Paris is the capital of France. Do you think there is any difference or are they just projections we put onto what are essentially a unitary memory process? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I mean, I'm not a... I mean, this isn't a central thing in my thinking, a central point in my thinking, although I think it's a very, very important issue. So, yeah, my natural, my natural starting point, given the, the general perspective I've been outlining, is to think of everything as fundamentally episodic. Um, so all you really have is uh, a rich collection of specific experiences, which, and, and, you, and you're pre, pre, you, you run through your life processing these experiences as they come into you. And they leave a trace, and then more come, and then those traces will affect how you process the new traces. But the so essentially everything's everything's episodes. But we normally think of episodic memory in psychology, of course, when I can, as it were, um, pick out when the episode was. So if I say, "How do you know?" I know that, that a particular restaurant has changed its decor. You might think, "Well, I know that because I was only there last Friday." But not not so true at the moment, of course, in a pandemic. Um, but you'd think in the normal course of events, I was only there last Friday. I remember the event. I remember going in and thinking, "Oh wow, they've changed that acre." So you have, in that case, a clear sense of where the uh, where the episodic root is. And I think a semantic memory, that or um, declarative memory, this broader knowledge of things like um, uh, the, the, the Earth goes around the Sun rather than the Sun goes around the Earth, and Paris is the capital of France, and so on. I think of those those are things as fundamentally of the same kind as episodic memory. We've just lost lost the episode. So if you ask me. Um, you know, who told? Who first told you that Paris was the capital of France? And the answer is, oh, I've just no idea. It's just, it's just. You know, people are always saying it, as it were. Um, and you know, when was it that you realised that the Earth went round the Sun? I mean, sometime long ago. I don't know. The difference from my mind would be not the what you can do with the information. It's just whether it's traceable or not. Now I know there are some arguments looking at, for example, the effects of brain damage, which appear to show that you can get damage to one memory, not the other. And in fact, the one you normally get is damage to the episodic system. So if you believe that there's episodes and there's this more general knowledge, 
um, then it, that seems to be uh, seems to be strengthened by the observation that if you have um, some kinds of um, brain damage, and also for people with very severe alcoholism, um, you can get a loss of somatic memory, sorry, episodic memory. So you can have real difficulty remembering much about your life and where you were yesterday, and it almost you know, your life story starts to collapse. But you may still know a fair amount about Paris being the capital of France and Earth going around the sun and so on. Um, but I think actually, uh, at least this is not a unique view to me at all, it's a very standard counter to that, is to say, yeah, but actually what those people have is, is a general loss of episodes and that shows up much worse when you ask them about specific episodes because specific, specific episodes have been damaged. But if you ask them general things, then any of a number of episodes will help them answer the question. So if you if you ask me about whether the Paris is the capital of France, since there's lots and lots of memories which will tell me the answer to that, then I only have to find one of them. Uh, but it's a really hard question to say, what was the last movie you saw? Because I have to pick out a particular episode. So it's just a tough task difficulty problem. And you see this all over the place in psychology that when you have um, a single set of tasks, but some are harder than others, and then you damage, people have damage or difficulty, then they can't do the hard things and they can do the easy ones. It's easy to think, ah, right, well, probably the hard and easy tasks are done by different systems, maybe different brain areas. That's the mistake, I think, what we may be falling into there. But it's a it's a complex and knotty area. This, so I, although I am really fond and sort of fond of and uh, wanting to push the episodic perspective, um, yeah, I think that's that it's not something I can honestly say that is is a resolved question in, in psychology. Interesting. Yeah, I actually had an idea when I was reading your book in that range, which was you talk quite a bit, which we'll get to later, that much of brain processing is whole brain or nearly whole brain processing of one snapshot at a time, and then it produces an output that's written to memory. And I said, hmm, I wonder if there are kind of stripped down mini episodes, essentially, where all the unnecessary details are eliminated. And so, for instance, there's an entity that kind of looks like an episodic memory, but is less rich, but just says Paris is the capital of France. And every time I think that thought, it gets rewritten. So we kind of combine these two thoughts to the one you just said is that, you know, Paris is the capital of France may exist in this stripped down semi-episodic memory hundreds or thousands of times, right? So sure, it would be preserved over damage more than others. Now, the other form of memory that you didn't address much, although again, a little bit in passing, and here are the evidence from damage is stronger that it's different is procedural memories, right? We learn how to play the piano or, or ride a bike. And even if we have complete elimination of both hemispheres of the hippocampus, that seems to be preserved. That seems like maybe that is a different animal. Yeah, well, again, I, I want to say, I don't think it is necessarily different, but the, the, the thing that is different is that certain kinds of procedural memories are going to be engaging particular cognitive processes, so different brain regions. So if it's the case, for example, that playing the piano is, broadly speaking, subserved by a relatively small subset, and it won't be that small, but a relatively small subset of brain areas, or, or, or such that you can lose a fairly large chunk of cortex, which I think we can, in some people who have, uh, still be able to play the piano successfully, then you, because you've got essentially dedicated neural hardware for this problem, then that hardware can keep running. Now, most problems we engage in don't really have, or most, most things we do in daily life, don't really have a dedicated hardware. But if you do some re repetitive task um, for hundreds of thousands of hours, you may well develop some 
dedicated hardware to do that task. And reading would be another thing. Um, to some extent, language too. Um, and the language does use an awful lot of lot of brain because of all the higher level inferential stuff to actually figure out you know, what, what what's worth saying. But um, if you have a special dedicated brain region for something, then then that rather breaks this idea that you can only do one thing at a time. The the reason that the brain is such a serial processor, what, the reason it does one thing at a time, is that it works as a giant distributed network. So the calculations it's doing, the processing it's doing, are spread across billions of billions of neurons, uh, which are all working interdependently in a cooperative fashion. So that means that if you're trying to solve one problem with a big cooperative network of neurons, then you can't get the same network of neurons to do another problem at the same time because they're going to get muddled up. So that implies that if you're doing a task where you don't have a special, as it were, dedicated piece of machinery or set, um, set up, you have to sort of cook something together on the fly with the sort of a range of mental mechanisms you have lying around. That's going to take up a lot of brain, and that's going to basically wipe out the ability to do anything else very complicated. But if you have a dedicated brain bit of neural machinery, then then you may be able to do run that thing and still do something else. So, for example, touch typists. Um, are able to read uh, text and type it if they practice this a great deal um, while still, for example, holding a conversation. Um, in fact, they, they won't have any memory of what they've, they've been typing, but they can just look at the, look at the text, type it, type it out, um, and they can think about other things. They can have a chat. They can do that because they've basically built this very, very specialized piece of machinery over hundreds and hundreds of hours of practice. I actually saw that. I actually saw, I had a, an executive assistant back in the, oh, I guess it was early 80s, and she was an old school secretary before she became an executive assistant. She could type 70 words a minute and carry on a conversation with me. You know, what the hell, right? Very impressive. <laughs> it is amazing. It's, it's an absolutely amazing thing to see. Yes. Yeah, so the fact that um, it's just become a sort of completely automated automated process. And, and it, it takes hundreds of hours to do it, of course. And similarly with piano playing. So when we're learning to play the piano, we're learning to type it initially. We don't have any special, we haven't constructed any machinery to do it yet. So it's using our whole brain is struggling away trying to keep the process on track. So you know, any slight interruption will completely scramble your typing or your piano playing. But once, you, once you're a master, then you can type furiously, you can play a piano piece, not with great beauty and expression necessarily, but you'll be able to play it while having a conversation because that all of that, that, that lower level stuff has been to some degree automated. Having said that, it's, this automation isn't perfect. So we tend to, for example, to imagine, for example, that when we're driving, we can, um, we can uh, drive on, as it were, on autopilot. And we think, yeah, I can, I can see that I can do that because look, I can have a conversation, I can listen to the radio, and I can think my own thoughts, and there I am driving along. But it turns out that that's not quite right. So if, I mean, most of the reason that we have a, such a strong sense of automatic driving is that most of the time when you're driving, nothing is happening. I mean, you're just going along, and the world's just flowing by, and there's no, there's no action to be taken. But as soon as you have to take action, it tends to scramble any other activity you're engaged in. So an, an everyday example of that is that almost invariably, if you suddenly have to brake suddenly while driving, you will certainly stop speaking. Um, no one, no one carries on a fluid conversation and keeps on going while slamming on the emergency stop. Um, everybody stops, and you have to. Um, and the experimental work by Hal Paschler uh, and his lab at UCSD have shown this in a simulated driving task, um, where they give people a, the task of following along a car, 
you know, very simple driving world and the car occasionally breaks and you've got to slam the brakes on your car. Um, it's not a real car. It's just, it's all just um, joystick stuff um, in a virtual environment. But when you do that, you, you, you're simultaneously, you, you, you're, you're asked questions, very simple questions like, uh, I think it's something, something like, you're, you're, for, for example, one version is you, you get a tone and you have just to say, was, was the tone high or low? And you have to say it too. So you don't know, no, no physical no sort of um, use of a keyboard or anything. Um, but it turns out that if, if, if you ask me whether a tone, a beep is high or low while I'm braking, I can't do both. I just have to do the braking, get the braking out of the way. And then I think, all right, what was that question? Uh, and then I answer the question. So even some, something where um, the task in the world is very simple and the task, the two things you've got to do, say, was that tone high or low or just keep the car on the road and, and brake when you need to. They seem like totally independent things, but actually they get tangled up. So I think it makes all these sort of remarkable cases, like the fact that people can type and play the piano and and chat at the same time, do those those things it makes it even more amazing because it really is the exception rather than the rule in cognition. Cool. Let's move on to the, our next topic. And those who people who listen to the show regularly know that it's one of my obsessions, which is attention. In fact, I've been known to say that we are our attention and it has, you know, implications in all kinds of things. Like for instance, you know, social media is constantly working to hijack our attention, you know, et cetera. And the idea of attention has been moved over into AI. For instance, some of the newest work in linguistic processors, like the GPT-3 thing that a lot of us have heard about recently, which is this amazing piece of software from OpenAI that seems to have learned a scary amount of language by processing a trillion words or something. You give it a root and it goes off to the races and creates text. It uses a technology called transformer networks, which actually uses attention as part of its model. So one of the things that is non-intuitive about our brain states, and I think has huge implications for the contents of our memory, is this idea of the unity of attention, that it's single-threaded mostly, with some exceptions that you talk about, and that it processes by single steps. In fact, in my own work where I attempt to build simulated consciousness, how about that, but for a white-tailed deer, not a human, I actually make that attention thing discrete, basically just have it change every 250 milliseconds or not. Either it changes or it doesn't based on a whole bunch of conditions, et cetera. But it just single steps through basically one object at a time, which then activates a different brain state, et cetera. So you go in quite a bit about this, this idea of the unity of attention and how it emerges from the concept of the whole brain or near whole brain processing. So tell us about attention and how this fits in with your model. So yes, I think, Jim, you, the way you framed the question actually um, encapsulates the way I, I, think, I think one should see this, which is to think of ourselves, to think, say that I am my, my, um, my attention, my focus of attention, and I am essentially a, a sequence of attentional snippets. Um, I think that's a very, a very useful way to think. Um, so it's very easy for us to imagine that as well as the things I'm attending to, my brain's engaged in all kinds of other activities. And it certainly is doing some things. It's certainly driving my heart. I don't have to worry about that. And it's, it's making me breathe. And it's doing lots, all sorts of uh, sort of practical housekeeping things. Um, but I would want to argue that really um, most, of the, most of the activity of your brain is focusing on whatever you're actively doing now. So if you're, you're speaking, if you're you know, playing, a, uh, a, playing a golf stroke, if you're focusing on some music, that's you know, pretty much your brain's primary primary business. It's it's pretty much entirely focused on 
on that one thing. And there'll be some peripheral activity going on here and there. But it's not, for example, the case that while I think um, I'm uh, chatting to a friend, there's a chunk of my brain which is wondering about a tricky problem I was stuck on yesterday. Or, uh, or there's another part of my brain which is sort of um, worrying about my finances. Or there's another part of the brain which is you know, processing some resentment about some past slight from a work colleague. All of this is, I think, completely, completely wrong. And your brain is a, because it's such a, a serial processor, it can only really do one complex thing at a time. If it's doing one thing, it's not doing anything else. Um, so it, it's really right to think of your, your brain as essentially taking on one challenge at a time, step by step, every you know, few hundred milliseconds is making a new stab, thinking, well, let me look from here to there, I'll move from word to word, I'll um, review a thought, I'll think I can follow on with another thought, I'll you know, look at another part of the, an image. Um, but it's a pretty slow process which pretty much blocks out everything else. We do have an intuitive sense of being very serial, I think, of struggling to do more than one thing at once. And yet, as with the grand illusion, we also have a sense that, oh, yeah, but while I'm doing this thing, I can, I can see a fully detailed world and I can hear all the sounds around me and I can feel my body on the chair. And, uh, well, I can now I think about it, but, but I, I couldn't before. Um, and I think we also do have this sort of implicit sort of intuition that and I'm doing lots of covert pondering as well, particularly if you're taking a sort of depth psychology perspective, you have the idea that there's all kinds of pondering of unexpected issues and in unexpected ways, which is going on in the background. But I, I think there's no real evidence that that's the case. In fact, I think the brain is really, because it's because of its, the way it's built, the fact is this, it's this big distributed system, it's really hard for that system to work on what, two problems at once with the same machinery yeah, I th I've actually found that to be a very interesting and challenging assertion on your part. And as I thought about it, I said, you're probably right. I will confess to being a person who has long believed in the background processing because I sort of felt it in myself, right? I've often written software as part of the work that I do. And, you know, not being a professional software developer, you know, I can easily paint myself into corners and things, right? And at, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, I go, fuck it, man, I just can't make any progress here. Let me go sleep on it. And I'm sure I'll have the answer in the morning. And amazingly often I do. But you gave a very interesting alternative way of looking at that, and I suspect that you're right. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the, your idea of resetting and getting rid of assumptions, et cetera, and an alternative argument for the phenomena that we can mistake as background processing. Yeah, I think this is, is a very powerful intuition that we all share, that you, you, you try to solve something, you can't, and you come back, and then suddenly it's clear. And it is very easy to imagine that what's been going on, and this is an old idea going back to, in fact, as a strand of Michelle's psychology that you mentioned earlier on, that uh, there's this idea of incubation, incubation problem solving. So you sort of the problem is being mulled over um, intuitively, even though you're not act actively addressing it. And I think the uh, the alternative, and it's not this is something that's an old, an old idea in um, cognitive psychology, but I think a very convincing one actually, uh, is that there's, there's something else is going on. So what's happening when you're trying to solve a tricky problem is you're searching in the space of, of solutions and you've got a, you're in a cul-de-sac. If you weren't in a cul-de-sac, you'd keep going and you'd, you'd just think, I'm nearly there, I've nearly got it, and you would keep going until you got it. But in fact, you, you stop and get baffled because you're, you're in a cul-de-sac. You can't, don't know how to go forwards. So if you um, keep going, you've somehow got to get yourself out of the cul-de-sac, and that's often quite hard. In fact, you've often thought about 
uh, possible ways out, which clearly haven't worked because you, you, you're just still stuck. And it's very hard to generate some new perspective on the problem, which will get you out. And what a break will often do is just reset. So you just come at the problem, you've forgotten where you were, and that's good because where you were was bad, you were in a bad place, and just start again. Um, and one, so, and so that's, that's that sense of now it's obvious to me is because now you've, you've started from a different place and that place just happens to be better. Often it won't be. And sometimes, often you'll just be in another bad place or another you know, place which you have to explore for a long time to work out whether you're better or not. Yeah, the way I articulated to myself when I read your theory was that my brain activations are still resonating away from the places I've had attention, say, for the last half hour, right? At some greater or lesser degree, or somehow it's somehow impacting the whole brain network, everything I paid attention to for a while, right? So it's, you know, the brain state is conditioned by what I've been thinking about for the half hour. And because I'm at a cul-de-sac, as you said, those were not the right paths, right? And just stripping all that prior history of attention out, or at least having it way lower activated the next morning, allows me to, whatever my internal processes are, and we'll get to that in a second, converge to something that's right, and it's in a different set of attractors, essentially. And I will say, it seems like you quote some evidence that it's essentially just random, but it doesn't feel like that to me. I and mean, again, maybe this is another illusion that I am way better the next morning on solving a stuck point in programming than I was at 4.30 in the afternoon the night before. So it doesn't feel random to me. And it may be that there's something deeper going on and clearing out a large amount of residual brain resonances from kind of the steps of attention. Yeah, and it's may, maybe the sleep is somehow very important to you, because I think there was some evidence that, that, that rest and sleep actually do lead to a better, better rebound effects. You get, so, so from the perspective we've been exploring, you're more fundamentally shifting your play, your, your, your attractor, and getting unstuck more effectively. And so that does, does appear to be the case. But if you certainly, if you try to get experimental evidence that people are really doing incubation properly, that it's really impossible with these has proved to be excruciatingly difficult to guess any such evidence. So the kind of thing you do is you give people, people have given, done so many experiments where they give people, for example, anagrams to solve. And some of them you can solve and some of them you can't. And once you can't, you just kind of go around and around. No, I just can't do it. Um, and so you then uh, give people a break and then they come back and do them again. And you know, it's very rarely the case that they do much better um, after a break. They maybe do a little bit, but it's you know, really, um, and, and the length of the break doesn't seem to make much difference. Um, so it's not as if you give them two hours and they're much better. They've got all the anagram sources there because they've had all that time to do the processing. Um, no, it's not really the case. Um, you know, they may be marginally better because they're slightly less stuck. You give them a nice sleep, they're probably slightly better. Um, but it's really much more consistent with uh, a sort of diffuse, nudging you out of your cul-de-sac rather than my brain is just knocking off the anagrams one after another, solving them all. And when I look back, bang, 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 bang it's not, not my best at all. Yep. And I should make a note for the listener here that just in this example Nick gave us, each one of his claims he has backed up with actual evidence and it's well footnoted and the footnotes actually have interesting discussions. So these aren't just dry footnotes. Footnotes are worth reading, which is not always the case for those who you know, want to have some sense of confidence that Nick just isn't making this shit up, even though of course he is based on his own theory, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yes. <laughs> well, I'm going to hop to another topic. It's one that I wasn't convinced of, but I'm not going to say that I'm right to not be convinced, but I'm sort of on the bubble, which is you argue 
that human thinking basically has no principles in it, right? We're not really doing our thinking based on principles we've somehow extracted from our thinking about the world. And you even make the, you know, to my mind, fairly extreme claim that even chess masters have no principles. They basically are just sort of clever at how they remember real boards. And I wasn't convinced by that argument. And in fact, let me play back the thing that kind of caused my ears to go up which is that you mentioned the well-known result that chess masters are no better than anybody else at recalling random boards, but they are way better at recalling the boards for real games that either they played or even any real game. You know, just show a chess master 10 positions from 10 random real games and they'll remember them, but they won't remember random boards any better than you or I. And I say, wait a minute here. Doesn't that say there's got to be some principle that's been a filter applied to perception that allows the chess master to know implicitly, at least, that one was a real board and one was another? And why that particularly resonated with me, my motivation for getting deeply into cognitive science was something surprisingly simple. Through all my life, I've played war games back to the days when I was 10 years old and they were little cardboard pieces with tanks on them that you moved around on a hexagonal paper board through all the evolution of the online stuff, et cetera. And in 2012, I learned a new computerized game called Advanced Tactics Gold, which is very complicated, very realistic, very good, and very hard, at least so it seemed. And I sat down, learned to play it. It kicked my ass bad the first couple of games. I got a little better, a little better. And this is a game way, way, way more complex than Go. In fact, some calculations I did said the average number of move possibilities is 10 to the 60th per turn. 10 to the 60th, as opposed to maybe 200 in Go and 30 in chess and five or six in checkers, draughts. So anyway, and then I also stopped and thought about it a little bit. How many of these war games have I played in my life? And gross estimate at that point was I'd probably played a game to conclusion 2,500 times in my life, which is a very low number compared to machine learning, right? Continue the story, advanced tactics, gold, good game people. If you like games, check it out. It's on Steam. After seven games, I had basically extracted enough, and I would argue applied my principles enough, so the sucker never beat me again. I probably played it a few hundred times since then, a hundred times, at least one every time. Sometimes difficult to win, but I've won. And you know what we know about machine learning, there's no way you could get that good on only playing a hundred times. Impossible, right? There has to be something else going on. So that's my pushback on no principles. Yeah. Well, I think it depends what you count as a principle, because I think what you're pushing back on is something I'm extremely sympathetic to. So if you think about how machine learning works as a model for the mind, which I think is, is, a, is an interesting thing to do, then the shocking thing is that it needs so much data, exactly as you're saying. You've got this enormous space of possible games, and you play in a tiny subspace, and you, and you've, you learn to play pretty well and, and, and start, to, start to win, even though you can't possibly be doing that by, in some simple-minded way, comparing the current um, game with previous games, because the space is just way, way too big. Um, now, I think that's absolutely true. So one, one view of what's going on is that the brain must have the ability that machine learning systems don't have to work out some 
underlying, as it were, sort of perhaps quasi-mathematical set of rules that of re rules which tell you how to play well. So instead of just thinking, oh, I've seen, seen a position like this before and, and I did this and it didn't work, I'll, I'll do something else, or I did work, so I'll do it again. Instead of doing something like that, you're, you're somehow breaking, breaking out and, and having some sort of general understanding, some sort of general theory of how to play the game. Now, I think that is wrong. I think the brain doesn't do that very well. And we have intuitions about how we play chess or go or any, any game. Um, but the intuitions are pretty poor. So when, as, as I'm sure you know, when people started to build chess playing computers, they one of the first things they had a go at is just asking chess players, um, well, what, how do you play good chess? This is a very sensible thing to do. Um, but actually, chess players can't say very much. They can certainly say things like, well, the queen, you don't want to lose your queen and don't rush your king into an attack. That's a clear mistake and control the center of the board and, and other things which are not, you know, not worthless, but they are fairly incomplete and minimal. So famously, um, you have books. Uh, I can't remember the, the author of some great Russian grandmaster has a wonderful, wonderfully titled book, which is something like you know, Principles of Chess Strategy or something. Um, and what does the book contain? What it contains is a stack of cool examples, like famous games, puzzle, tricky problems, with an explanation, intuitive explanation of you know, how to deal with this kind of case. Now, but what it doesn't do is say, now the principles of chess, here they are. Uh, and of course, the, if, we, if we knew the principles of chess, if, they, if there were any, um, that would be useful, then obviously building chess playing computers would be much easier than it is. So I think the right lesson to draw from that kind of case is to think, well, what's interesting about human learning, and this is what the, the prince of, quote, supposed principles of chess book is telling you, is it's saying, think deeply and reflectively and thoughtfully about the cases you encounter. So you're not just storing them, as it were, as raw data, thinking, if I see raw data, it looks a bit like this again, I know what to do. You're not doing that. You're thinking in a very rich, metaphorical, analogical way of thinking, now, what's going on here? What, what, what kind of thing is this? Have I seen anything a bit like this before? And I think this is the, the ability that's really astonishing, you know, uh, uh, that makes us so remarkable. It's not that we can play chess by working out sort of, as it were, sort of mathematical principles about what to do, how to play every chess game. But what we can do is think, this position I'm in now reminds me possibly implicitly, of a number of other positions. And in those positions, these, this, the kind of thing I did was this. So probably this is the kind of thing I'm going to do now. So it's a, it's a higher, more abstract level. Now, how that works, how the brain is able to operate at this more abstract level so that it can um, learn not just from the very specific board position, but the class of board positions. I mean, how that, that works is the kind of holy grail of cognitive science and AI, in my view. It's the kind of thing that Doug Hofstadter was, was doing so much, so much work on uh, 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 40 years ago and, and, and for ongoing. Um, to try to understand the sort of fluidity and creativity of our ability to deal with particular experiences, extra extracting sort of analogically. This, this is a case a bit like that previous case um, and doing that in a way that is, is um, sort of coherent. And that's, that's remarkable we can do it, but I think that's what we're doing. Because um, if we were producing principles, well, first of all, we never, people can never articulate them. But also, most complicated problems, and your game will absolutely be one of these, I'm sure, there's no real algorithm. The algorithm, if there is an algorithm to play, to play that game well, is almost certainly a very memory-based algorithm. It's in situations like this, do this. In situations like this, do this other thing. It won't be a, you know, something sort of more abstract than that. So I think if you want to call those principles, that, that more abstract way of seeing the world, then that's, that, that's, you know, that's, that, I think that absolutely is what the brain is doing. 
But what it's not doing, I think, is is producing a, a set of rules or a kind of abstract theory, uh, which is a consistent understanding of how to play the game or how the world works or anything of that kind. Yeah, I agree 100%. In fact, the word I always use, I didn't use principles, I just used your word, principles. I call those heuristics. And in fact, my mission, and I don't know if I'll succeed because I'm too old, God damn it! I wish I'd started this when I was younger instead of when I was 60 years old, is heuristic induction. How is it that we induce heuristics? Because there's no doubt about, at least based on my introspection, but as you point out, our introspection is dubious when I'm playing my game or any games. And in fact, since I did all that work with Advanced Tactics Gold, I even got the source code from the developer and wrote some evolutionary algorithms that improved his AI. I've played some other games and I just see again and again and again, I develop heuristics, which are definitely not algorithms. You can't say that these five or six or seven rules of thumb for that particular game are quite enough to win. But if you have a brain that's been tuned to extract patterns from games, you can then apply the heuristics in a pretty straightforward fashion. For instance, there's a whole class of games where it's really important that you keep your line consistent across the board so guys can't get past you, right? Kind of true in chess, but really true in some of these military games. And then there's also one of the things you learn when you play one of these games is the relative efficacy of defense versus attack. For instance, having played several hundred titles over my life, maybe a thousand, now probably several hundred, a meta pattern is that often, it turns out to be true in real life and war as well, that it's often better to take the tactical defensive and get the other guy to attack you first and then counterattack, right? That turned out to have been the tactical brilliance of the German army in World War II, particularly in the later phases of the war. So there's heuristics and how we induce heuristics from these otherwise flat patterns, I think is still a huge open question and is right at the very core of my own interest in this space. Yeah, and I think, I think it's at the, as you were hinting, it's at the very core of intelligence, really. And what is astonishing is that, is that we can produce these sort of rough patterns, heuristics and so on. And they, um, they aren't, as you say, they're not sufficient on their own to solve the problem. If you coded those into a computer, that it, wouldn't, it, wouldn't be a winning computer, it wouldn't be a winning system on its own. Um, but if you put that together with a, a creative, flexible brain, it can somehow know which heuristic is the right one to deploy. And when there's a clash, you think, no, no, this is clearly a case where this one much more important than that one. But there may be some other case where, the, where, where it's the reverse. That ability to kind of knit together a difference of these, these heuristics is, is, is very, um, it's very remarkable. Um, and I think you know, it's, it, we, are, we do forget just how unbelievably good we are at, at finding complicated patterns in very small amounts of data. And so, you know, the fact that you can play a, a game with an enormous space of possible moves and get pretty good at it quickly, that's very interesting. Um, similarly, I mean, science manages to produce principles, and it really does produce principles. They're not in the heads of the scientists directly. They're the things we actually produce as a, as a community. The same in sciences, which have been very successful, such as physics. Um, you know, amazingly, it turns out you can produce um, a relatively small number of principles which explain a huge amount of, of reality. Um, so, the, you know, huge, but, but you're not doing that by as it were, surveying the universe and just taking in as much data as you possibly can. In fact, you're narrowing down on a tiny, tiny amounts of data and you're sort of carefully dropping balls down uh, slopes of different inclines and carefully watching pendulums go backwards and forwards. Then remarkably, it turns out that you doing this leads you to generalizations which, which help you understand the universe as a whole. And that's just an amazing thing. 
Um, but it really doesn't work by being a kind of data hoover uh, the way in the way the machine learning is, which is the kind of I'll take a trillion words or a trillion images and just find some find the structure of all of them. The human brain seems to work in a really different way. Yeah, it is interesting, and you know, one, and we we alluded to it a little bit in passing that one of the other cutting edge things, you know, learning on small data is something people are quite aware of as the distinction between humans and data. In fact, I noticed you had in your acknowledgement section, my friend Josh Tenenbaum has done a lot of work on small sample learning and ways that are rather different than brute force machine learning. And, you know, this is a very hot area. But anyway, the other area where this is, there's a lot of tension right now is about language, right? Particularly with the new GPT-3 out, which we alluded to earlier, is this massive trillion word database that's been processed by several billion node deep learning network to produce a language model. And it's scary how good it is. However, it does not appear to actually understand language. It doesn't take a genius to figure out how to trick it. And so probably human language learning is something different than just brute force pattern matching on a trillion words. Just, you know, frankly, we know we don't get exposed to a trillion words. We have pretty good mastery of language by the time we're what you guys work on that language, three or four years old, right? Yeah, I four years pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Again, something like principles, something like probably not Chomsky and universal grammar, but something like that maybe is there. Well, I think, I think again, it's going back to the point that cognition for me is perception. I, I want to see all of these cases as cases where you're abstracting from specific concrete experiences, but you're maybe abstracting at quite a high level of generality. So in learning a language, and this is something that Morton Christians and I, and I have been thinking about lots of the last few years, you should think of learning a language as learning a skill, which might intuitively sound to most people as very natural. Of course, it's learning a skill. It's, it's, it's a, no, no more or less than playing the piano or um, learning to, to play a sport um, or in the game. Um, but traditionally, it's not viewed like that. It's viewed as, uh, at least in, in, in Chomsky's perspective, it's viewed as a problem of learning a body of knowledge, not, but not a body of knowledge which uh, tells you how the, what sentences are allowed in your language and how they're composed. And that abstract body of knowledge um, is, is the sort of real target of learning. And that is supposed to take you far beyond mere skill learning. Um, but I think the, the approach that Morton and I uh, and others, many others, um, would take is to, is to see language as, as an abstraction from lots and lots of concrete experiences. So what you're learning is you're learning specific words, you're learning specific patterns of words, you're learning specific relationships between singulars and plurals and so on in, in verbs and nouns. And all of these patterns and, and constructions are the, is the, the term of art in, in linguistics at the moment. That's the, um, the movement. Construction grammar is, is, takes, takes, the, takes this kind of perspective. You're seeing the, pros, pr the task of learning a language is learning all these little micro patterns and they gradually build up and interact to give you a complicated system, which is the, 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 system, the system of language we, that, that we speak. But really, you're learning it sort of piece by piece by piece. But you're learning it as a, as a set of sort of chunks of information, sort of chunks of knowledge. You're learning about particular um, particular noun verb, nouns and which verbs they go with. You're learning particularly about how certain kind of endings work. Um, and you're not, as it were, just blitzing, blitzing the, the, the entire corpus that you've ever heard. And you're find, finding these patterns and building on those patterns and building incrementally more and more. So I suppose there's some very interesting sort of step-by-step -step process 
of learning that we're engaging in when we're learning a language, which is very different from the kind of blitz that the machine learning system will do, which allows us to, to learn from very small samples. I mean, you've got a little child will hear a few million up to perhaps 10, 30 million or so um, in a very high linguistic input household, 30 million words a year. So you, a four-year-old might have heard you know, between 10 and 100 million, depending on the household, words, most of which it would have been paying no attention to and probably made no difference at all. But it's way too little, as you say, for a machine learning system. And the child's also got the problem, of course, of doing all the phonology, just working out what are those sounds? How do I, you know, just understanding the speech signal as an acoustic object and translating that acoustic stimulus into a symbolic form. That itself is a huge learning task. So the child's learning feat is pretty, pretty remarkable. Indeed, indeed. We're you know, running a little bit short on time here. I'm going to skip over a whole section on folk physics, folk biology, and folk psychology, and the failure of good old-fashioned AI, which is more or less implied by the failure of those two. But I would encourage listeners to read the book and go into that. Something that I think is going to be of real interest to folks is, I thought, a very clever set of arguments on the nature of emotion. We think of, oh, you know, I'm feeling you know, anger or whatever, that it's a pure emotion. Well, you know, there's this distinction between emotions and feelings in the cognitive science literature, emotions in the body, feelings in the head, roughly speaking. And you give some very clever examples on how that's probably right. And one I had forgotten all about, the Kuleshov effect. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about how your overall model predicts, actually, I think, accurately, you know, sort of body plus context equals emotion, something like that. Yes, absolutely. So, so perhaps I'll start with the Kuleshov effect. So Lev Kuleshov was a, a Soviet director in the early part of the 20th century. And he noticed the effect, this effect that bears his name, which is if you show a, say, even still, although it could also be um, moving, a still image of a, of a person, and you change the context they're in, although this image of them is exactly, exactly the same, then they will, um, you will the, the viewer will interpret the facial expression differently. So the famous example is, is, is of a, um, one of his actors, even Mazukin, who has a rather impassive expression in the example, it is in the book, uh, and you place him next to a picture of a dead child, I think it's a mock-up of a dead child, but it's a, a, a sad-looking picture of a, um, a, a child in a coffin, and, and you look at his face and you look at the coffin and you think, oh, he's, he's expressing misery, this desperate sense of sadness, which he's, he's controlling it, but you can see it's there very powerfully. Um, and yet, if you place the same, um, the same face beside a, um, uh, a picture of a, of a bowl of soup, which doesn't look particularly appetizing, the soup, uh, but mysteriously, um, he starts to look hungry and he looks like he wants to eat the soup. And, if you put, put, and then the final one is he's got a, a, an attractive woman lying on a chaise long, and you think, ah, I see his lust in his eyes. Even though again, he's, he's hiding it well, it's quite subtle. Um, so the sense that we're able to project and do project um, a different emotion into a, into a face is, is, I think, very interesting. Now, the thing is that I, I think that's a very good indication of what's going on when we're interpreting our own body state. So... Instead of looking at Ivan Muzikin's face, I'm also, uh, of course, in my daily life, I'm trying to interpret my own physiology. So I've got a fairly simple model of my own physiology. So I, I know roughly how much adrenaline's floating around. Um, I know whether I'm feeling positively attracted to a stimulus or wanting to recoil from it. 
But there's not actually a lot more than that. Um, it's not that's not it. But that's like you know, it's adrenaline, for example, correlate with my breathing and heart rate and so on. They're very, really a very simple underlying um, physiological system that I'm aware of. Um, so that means that if I have a particular physiological reaction, I have to think to myself, well, what's going on here? What's why is this reaction coming from? Rather like rather like looking at even even Mosukin's rather impassive face. And to work it out, as with, um, with the face, I, I look at the context. So I find myself in a situation where, oh, well, let, me take, let me give a famous example of a, a bridge crossing experiment, which is a lovely experiment. Yeah, I love that one. That was like a hammer hitting me in the head when I read that. Yeah, yeah. So this is a, this is a wonderful experiment done at the University of British Columbia in about 1974, I think, by a, couple of, a pair of brilliant social psychologists. So they, they station attractive women who are experimenters who are holding a clipboard at one end of two bridges. And one bridge is a wobbly bridge, um, which is a sort of suspension bridge, which is actually quite a scary bridge to walk across. It sort of moves around as you walk, I think. Um, and another bridge is just some regular bridge down, uh, down at, as it were, ground level. This is an area where lots of uh, undergraduates walk through. They're picking off um, male undergraduates and giving them their questions. And they say at the end, oh, by the way, for um, ethical reasons, um, I have to give you a chance to follow up if there are any questions. Um, so here's my phone number. And there really aren't any questions that would have arisen um, in, this, uh, in this little interchange. But the phone number's there. And of course, the bridge crosser um, might think, oh, well, that was a very attractive woman. Um, shall I give her a call? Just, you know, just to, 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 to get to know her better. Uh, and so, and indeed, sure enough, uh, well, there are two things that are interesting that they measured. One is how many of the bridge crossers asked for the number and how many don't, and then how many of those that did ask for the number, how many did they actually actually call. Now, it turns out that you get something like 50 or so percent more of, of asking for the number and calling for people who've walked across the high bridge. Now, what's going on there, you might think? This, how, how can that be relevant? But it is relevant, of course, from the perspective of trying to understand your own feelings. Uh, through your um, monitoring of physiology. Because what happens to those people on the high bridge? They walk across the high bridge and it's quite scary. So that leads to all kinds of adrenaline flooding around the system. Then they meet the experimenter and they think, well, I just need to have this incredible adrenaline rush. Think, wow. I mean, the only reason it must be because this person is just somehow you know, connecting with me in some fundamental way. Um, I'll, I'll get her number and call. Um, of course, in practice, the adrenaline rush is, is the bridge, but we're not seeing it that way because we're locked into the conversation we're having now, and, and that's that's you know, that, that's our interpretation of our um, experience is a, a tremendous feeling of interest and attraction in, in this person, and that that phenomenon I think is, is very very general. So another example, much more prosaic example, but rather clever, is some experiments by Danny Oppenheimer, um, psychologist now at Carnegie Mellon. He's done many, many clever experiments in this kind of thing. But one very simple one is that you give people pictures of luxury cars, uh, which are either badly or well photocopied. Um, so, the, so the first thing is that if you ask people to, which car they prefer, they tend to prefer the well photocopied car. And you're not asking them about the picture, you're asking them about the car. But if they see a crummily photographed um, luxury car, they think, well, anyway, no, I just don't really like that car so much. Now, if, on the other hand, so the same thing. So I'm looking at the, 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 the image and I'm thinking, I'm just generally feeling a slightly icky, queasy, I don't know, just unsettled feeling about that image. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with the image? Of course, the answer is, well, it's badly photocopied. That's wrong with it. What's wrong with it? But we don't interpret it that way. We just think, 
Well, I'm looking at a car. I'm, I'm feeling visually a bit unhappy. Probably it's because it's a car I don't really like. And the wonderful thing about Danny's experiments is he has an extra condition where he, tell, he tells people, oh, I'm so sorry. We had real problems with the photocopier. So some of these images are terrible. And then the effect doesn't completely go away, I think, but it largely goes away. So you, you do, as soon as people know, oh, right, yeah, it's a beautiful car, but a crummy photocopy, then they're okay. So similarly, I think, in the bridge-crossing experiment, had the uh, experimenter reminded people, oh, you've just walked across a bridge, how much adrenaline do you feel? Maybe that, if that would have been the question, what's the, what's the, been the effect of walking across that bridge, bridge on, on how you feel? Then they'd have thought, oh, yeah, right, of course, the adrenaline's coming from the bridge, not from the experimenter. And so that's, that's a clue that it's, it's interpretative. The, the sense of emotion, the sense of attraction to a person, attraction to a car, the sense of fear of walking across a bridge, and whatever it may be, these are interpretative states. You're trying to work out what your body is telling you. In just the same way that looking at an ambiguous face, you're trying to work out what that face is, is, is meaning. And you're, to do that, you're taking account of the context as well as your body. But you're not, it's not the case that the emotion is in, in any sense welling up from within, fully interpreted. It doesn't, it doesn't come from within you with its uh, wearing its uh, content on its face, as it were. Rather, you've got physiological response contextual situation and the interpretative brain is, is churning away and thinking i know what this is it must be this um but often of course those interpretations are wrong that's really a powerful insight i must say and you give a very interesting example of the potential dangers of thinking the opposite you tell the story of bertrand russell and you know his internalized view that he no longer loved his wife talk about that a little bit and some of the dangers of assuming that these emotional states are deeper than they actually are. I think this is something we all have to be really careful of. Yes, yeah, so Bertrand Russell is cycling, I think, near Grantchester, and he has some thunderbolt sense that he doesn't love his wife. And although, in fact, their marriage then continues on for many years, seven or eight, I think, um, it's at that point sort of all over, and it's just a matter of um, escape uh, and, 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 and uh, gradual extrication. Um, and I think that his mental model, and obviously Bertrand Russell was a phenomenal genius, uh, so not, not through lack of sophisticated, sophisticated thinking, but his mental model of what's going on in emotions is from time to time, you know, your true feelings just burst forth. And when they burst forth, you've just got to know that that's, that's my real feeling. There it is. You know, I just got to act on that, um, which he did. Um, now, that may, be, may, may or may not have been the right thing to do, but I think not for that reason, because I think this sense that we have of, of, of deep things welling up, deep, deep thoughts welling up from within is just fundamentally, fundamentally extremely, extremely forced and, and illusory. And a similar thought is that um, in, in, in heated discussions with our loved ones, we can quite often find people saying things that one has that feeling of, well, that's what you really think there. Now that's the truth has come out at last. And I think, again, that's a very dangerous perspective to have. We should view ourselves much more as creative fiction spinners who can produce a fiction of one type and of the reverse type, and, not, and neither the listener nor the person creating the fiction is really, should be really sure quite what story is the right one. So that sort of sense that there's a kind of Rubicon you can accidentally pass, and, or that some sort of true insight which will come to you and there's no way back. I think it's a very dangerous one. We should be very wary of that. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. The theme throughout the book is that what's really in our brain is both sparse and inconsistent. So don't take it as seriously as we sometimes do, right? Because it's provisional. The brain's just making this shit up on the fly. The confabulator, I've used that term for a long time since I became aware of Gazaniga's work. I wish we could go into Gazaniga, but we're short on time. Let's move on to some applied stuff now. 
with all this idea that it's provisional, it's confabulation, it's sparse, it's inconsistent, nonetheless, we have built up culture, right? And culture takes all this inconsistency and sparseness and sort of gets co-created with some attempts to put stakes in the ground. And, you know, I was thinking of some extreme examples, one of which is the Catholic catechism. As a kid, I was raised a Catholic till I rebelled against it at age 11. I've told the story on the podcast a few times, but it was a pretty powerful system of indoctrination, right? So you just repeat it again and again and again. You write down memory traces and you can spit out the answers to the 300 questions in the Baltimore catechism by the time you're nine years old. And then you look at, you know, Marxist-Leninism and their worship of the works of Marx and Engels. You know, a good Marxist-Leninist could cough up Marx or Engels' justification for almost anything. And then, of course, the similar systems in other religions, whether it's Hindu, Buddhism, Taoist, and cultures more generally, select certain representations for maximum repetition. And that's what culture seems to be. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. No, I think there's something deeply true about that. Um, I mean, I think to the extent we should think of ourselves as as, as traditions. So each 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 of us is a is a is a tradition of our, which basically consists of all our past thoughts and actions. So there's this incredible degree to which um, we have we because of our our flow of experience and our continual flow of attention hopping from one one thing to another, we built up this enormous repertoire of experience, and that will condition the way we think about new things. So each so I want to stress. Uh, that, that we are incredibly rich, sophisticated beings, and we're rich through our ability to tap into our own history and our own tradition. But of course, we're not just our own tradition. Actually, many of the things we know come from other people. In fact, we're a collect- we, we, we collectively create cultural traditions which are far more elaborate than any individual could, could create. But that does also mean that, that it's possible to try to coerce or corral people in a particular direction by, by putting various sort of cultural stakes in the ground and saying, Whenever, um, whatever you think about any, anything, this is one thing we all take to be indubitable, and to have a sort of list of, of, of sort of basic basic truths, and even though those truths may be very hard to understand. So you may have people who are uh, convinced of some religious truth. So, for example, the Trinity beings are three in one, which is very hard to know what that really, what it is exactly one's believing. But one can think, well, I. I've been taught this is right, it's very important, and I believe it. Or possibly I've been taught it's not right, and it's very important, so I definitely don't believe it. Um, but whatever it is, whichever way around it is, one can have an extremely strong sense of this is an important conviction to hold on to and defend, even without a really clear sense of what it is that one is holding on to and defending. Um, and so I think we should, we should always be skeptical of, 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 of stakes in the ground. All stakes should be movable, I think. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that comes out of that work very strongly, and I hope disseminates out into the world, is that all this stuff is provisional, it's inconsistent, it's sketchy, and so don't believe that shit, right? Unless you can find objective evidence that reinforces it, you know, and it points to me even more the importance of the scientific frame of mind, and I'm sure I'm going to piss off some of my postmodernist friends here, you know, the liberal universalist mind, right, that doesn't try to go from theory to everything and believes in tolerance and empiricism essentially as ways to engage with the world, that we should be suspicious of these stakes in the ground. This has been a wonderful conversation. I didn't get to all my notes by any sets of the imagination. Yep. So, well, thanks so much, Jim. I mean, it's been a huge pleasure to be on the show and 
and you know, lots of great questions and, and lots also for me to think about more and I, I very much hope some of your listeners have found this this, this useful and interesting and um, and I, I hope it helps uh, all of us just think a little bit more about how both how we do work how little we know how we work and also the fact that we shouldn't be too sure about uh, both any of our beliefs uh, but certainly not any of our beliefs about our minds indeed well this has been wonderful i've enjoyed the hell out of it and i'm glad i had the opportunity to read the book a second time and to come closer at least to your point of view production services and audio editing by jared james consulting music by tom muller at modernspacemusic.com <laughs>